1: Why did Dr. Hardy show Dr. Avalos a photo array containing a 5'3 woman when she described a 6'3 man? From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Last week, we began the process of investigating the investigation of the murders of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney. The source material that I used for reference was a 47-page police offense report. The report chronicles the investigation that led to Deborah Perringer's trial step-by-step. We made it through the first 20 pages of the report, and what we found within were a few answers to some pretty big questions. We learned that Agnes began her day with a 9 a.m. chiropractor appointment, followed by a chat with the chiropractor and his wife, and then a trip next door to the produce market. It seems that based on the interviews with both the chiropractor, his wife, and the owner of the market, Agnes likely didn't arrive home any earlier than 10.30 on the morning that she was murdered. We also learned that Deborah's car was spotted at the Courtney's house by multiple neighbors between the hours of 8 a.m. and 10.15 a.m., but no one saw her car at the house after that. And we now know that Lloyd was scheduled to be at work that day at 2 p.m. And lastly, we confirmed that evidence was sent to the Fort Worth PD crime lab for DNA testing. And based on an entry in the report stating that DNA testing and the evidence will resume, I believe that it's more than fair to conclude that at least some DNA testing was conducted by the lab before the evidence was sent to Orchid Cellmark. Just as Dr. Ambers suspected. We left off last week on November 12th, 10 days after the murders. And today we're going to pick right up where we left off.
0: The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.
1: On November 13th, Detective Hardy made contact with the Courtney's other daughter, Brenda Stuckert, and scheduled a polygraph examination. The polygraph was scheduled for the 15th of the month. Then, on that same day, Hardy received a printout of recently released parolees to Tarrant County. It seems that at least at this point, he was looking into the possibility that the note attached to Lloyd's body was legitimate, but I don't see any further information on this list of parolees. It's not clear how any or all of them were ruled out as suspects. Earlier in the investigation, Debbie was asked to take a polygraph, and her lawyer voiced some concerns about her taking the exam given the litany of medications that she was on. On the 14th of November, the report states that well-known polygrapher Eric Holden weighed in on the issue. The report states, quote: Detective Hardy inquired as to whether or not Deborah Peringer could be polygraphed based on her medications and prior mental illness. Eric Holden stated that he did not feel it would be a problem to polygraph Deborah Peringer. End quote. And then later that day, Detective Hardy left a message for Deb's attorney, Jeff Kearney, regarding the polygraph. A lot of listeners have been asking questions about Deb's husband, Paul, and his whereabouts on the day of the murders. On November 15th, Detective Hardy went to Emergency Plumbing, Paul's place of employment, to speak with his boss. As it turns out, Paul is very solidly alibied for the day of the murders. Not only did his boss provide a printout of all of Paul's invoices for the day, but he also turned over a GPS log. Evidently, all of the work vans were equipped with tracking devices that monitor every movement of the vans. Paul Perringer was working all day, and his exact whereabouts from 6 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. are accounted for. Later that day, Hardy met with a Lois Kreps. Lois was Deb's daughter, Angela's second-grade teacher. She relayed to Hardy that Paul Perringer had asked her to come over to the house to talk with Angela about her grandparents' deaths. She explained to the detective that during her visit on November 10th, she spoke with Deb and Paul. And Deb told her that she had been concerned about her mother leaving the garage door open and, quote, leaving signs in the front yard for yard work to be done. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but that's what it says in the report. But Lois also said, quote, Deborah also said that her parents used to receive death threats because of her dad's job. End quote. Still on the 15th, Detective Hardy met with Bob Adkins of the Fort Worth PD Crime Lab to discuss photographs of the fingerprints found at the scene. The report says, quote, After reviewing the photographs of the fingerprints, Bob Adkins stated that none of the prints were comparable, end quote. Now, I'm not really sure what that statement means. In a previous entry, it was noted that there were two usable prints found at the scene and that they didn't match any of the known suspects or the victims. So I don't really understand what... None of the prints were comparable means. I'm not even sure if Hardy is referencing the same prints as he described earlier in the report. Later that same day, Brenda went to the Behavioral Measures and Forensic Services office to take her polygraph examination. From the report, Eric Holden conducted the polygraph with Brenda Stuckert. After the polygraph, Eric Holden advised Detective Hardy that Brenda Stucker did not indicate deception in reference to the relevant questions, which were, number one, were you involved in the assault on the Courtney's? Number two, did you have any part in assaulting the Courtney's? And number three, were you at the Courtney's on November 2, 2001, when they were assaulted? After taking the polygraph, Hardy asked Brenda if the Courtney's had a garbage can near the kitchen, and whether or not they normally had a bag or liner in the can. Brenda said that there was a garbage can in the utility room, and I assume she's talking about the laundry room, and that there was always a garbage bag in that trash can. Hardy also asked if it was Agnes' normal practice to remove her shoes inside the house, and Brenda stated that Agnes normally did wear her shoes in the house. Another indicator that she did not walk in on Lloyd's assault, but rather was in the bedroom napping when the attack began. On November 18th, the report reads, Detective Hardy made contact with Brenda Stuckert. Brenda advised Detective Hardy that Deborah had contacted her asking about when Brenda was going to start the process of executing the Courtney's will. Deborah also told Brenda that when she left her parents' house on November 2nd that the garage door was open. Deborah had initially told Brenda that she did not remember anything from the morning that her parents were killed. I'm not really sure what to make of the fact that, allegedly, Deb asked about execution of the Courtney's will. The state leaned heavily on the will at trial, citing money as Deb's motivation for killing her parents. To my understanding, the Courtney's will split all assets evenly between Debbie and Brenda. And as the report indicates, Brenda was listed as the executor of the will. So the state would say that Debbie's inquiry about the will was simply her cashing in on her handiwork. But is it? Or is this simply a normal step in the process of dealing with a lost loved one? To be honest, I don't know what normal is. I can only speak to my own experiences. So about three weeks ago, my wife's grandmother passed away. Now, I don't know when the process began, but I know that within a week of her passing, my in-laws were discussing with me the tax implications of their inheritance. A week after that, the family had hired an appraiser to value Nana's house all of which seemed perfectly normal to me. and The same was true when my grandfather passed away years ago. Within a day or two of his passing, my father and his siblings were digging through paperwork to figure out if my grandparents had a will and to figure out how to execute it. And again, based on my own anecdotal experiences, it seems, air quotes, normal to me for heirs of a person who had passed away to begin the process of executing wills shortly after the funeral. Now, in this case, over two weeks had passed since the Courtney's murders before Deb asked her sister about the will. Is that suspicious, or is that exactly what you would expect to happen? You're going to have to answer that question for yourself. But in my personal opinion, I wouldn't find the inquiry strange whether Debbie is guilty or not. At some point, the will has to be executed, and eventually, someone has to get that process started. On November 19th, Detective Hardy obtained search warrants to search both Debbie's home and her car. It's not noted here in the report, but based on the trial transcripts, nothing of evidentiary value was found in the house. The same is true of Debbie's car. It was taken to the police impound on that very day, and crime scene investigator Patrick Gass processed the car. And not a single drop of blood was detected inside. A week later, Detective Hardy visited a super target store. See during the search of Deb's house, he had found a handwritten timeline of her movements on the day her parents were killed. Now keep in mind, this was not a timeline that she created for the police. My guess is that her attorney advised her to write down where she was throughout the day. Or maybe she just took it upon herself once she realized that she was the main suspect in the case. It's even possible that Detective Hardy asked her to write it down after his first interview with her on November 3rd. In any case, Debbie's handwritten timeline was included in my open records request with the Fort Worth Police Department. I do not know when this was written. It wasn't found by police until the 26th of November, just over three weeks after the murders. But this is what Deb wrote down on her timeline. Number one. Got Angela up. Breakfast. Dressed. Number two. Started washing dishes while Angela ate cereal. Cut finger on knife and dishwasher. Put Band-Aid on it. Number three, took Angela to school. Was going to mom's to pick up tree paperwork and concert tickets for Saturday, but she had a chiropractor appointment and wouldn't be home until about 10. So went to Target to pass time to find Angela headband, purse, shoes to match dress. Number four, went to mom's, got there about 10 and mom got there right after. Mom gave me paperwork and tickets, and I left waving to Joe the neighbor as I pulled out. Number six, called Tree Service to see if they really needed paperwork to plant trees, and they said no. So I went to Cece's Pizza at 11 o'clock for lunch. Number seven, went to Walmart and Kmart to hunt for Angela's items. Got home about 1:45. Was very sleepy, so took a nap. Number eight, overslept, ran outdoor, and fell downstairs. Tried starting car, wouldn't work, jiggled battery cables, car started. Called school to say I would be a little late picking Angela up. Got there about 3.20, then went to Walmart to get Angela's stuff. Number nine, home about 5 p.m., Angela went out to play, and I started cleaning up yard. Was picking up rocks and putting them in wheelbarrow. Grabbed rocks and ripped finger open on jagged edge. Bled through band-aid, so I went to neighbor, Cecilia Pfeiffer to get some gauze and tape. She didn't have, but other neighbor did. Number 10, came home, usual nighttime activity in bed.
0: With the Lucky Land slot you can get lucky just about anywhere. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void by prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website
1: for details. There's a lot to unpack here with Deb's timeline. First of all, we see right away Deb explaining how she cut her finger. She says that she cut it on a knife in the dishwasher. So why might she mention the cutting of her finger in her itinerary? My guess would be because she already knows that the police are suspicious of the cut. Detective Hardy took photos of it on the day after the murders and asked her how the cuts got there. I don't know that we can attribute her explanation or excuse about the cut, depending on your perspective, as an indicator of guilt or innocence. As I said, she knows at this point that the police are suspicious of the cut, If she's innocent, then she would certainly want to explain how the cuts got there. And if she's guilty, well, she would want to provide an alternate explanation for the cuts. So either way, I'm not surprised that she mentions them. But what I do find kind of interesting is that she documents two different instances where she cut the finger. First in the morning, and then reopens the wound moving rocks in the afternoon. So if she's lying altogether about the cuts, then let's see if we can break down the utility in the lies. I think it's safe to assume that Deb does not know that her blood is on the crime scene at this point. The police certainly didn't know yet, and one would have to assume that if she knew she had left blood behind, she surely would have made an effort to clean it up. So again, if we're working under the assumption that she's lying about the cuts, then why lie and say she cut herself before the murders? There are witnesses to confirm that she was bleeding from the finger in the evening. She mentions her neighbor by name. If she's just trying to explain the cut, she would actually be better off to only say that she cut her finger on the rocks in the evening after the murders. And if the cut in the morning was intended to explain the blood on the scene, then why not go all in and add details about bleeding while she's at her parents' house? What I'm getting at is that if she's lying, which is entirely possible, I'm finding it hard to understand why the two instances of her finger bleeding. Now, moving on with her list, number three is a little confusing. She says that she was going to mom's house, which is another thing that I find interesting. In every occurrence in this itinerary, Deb always refers to her parents' house as mom's house, never mom and dad's house. As a matter of fact, Lloyd is never mentioned at all. She says in number three that she was, quote, Going to mom's to pick up tree paperwork and concert tickets for Saturday, but she had a chiropractor appointment and wouldn't be home until about ten so went to Target to pass time." Now The way this is written, it reads like she went to Target instead of going to mom's, but I don't think that's what happened. There are multiple witnesses who saw Deb at her parents' house around 8am and then again at 10am, but no sightings in between and nothing after 10.15am. I think what she's saying, or at least what I think may have happened, is that she went to the house, her dad told her that her mom was at the chiropractor, then she left and went to Target, and then returned around 10. But why no mention of Lloyd? The itinerary never says that she saw her dad, spoke to her dad, or interacted with him in any way. That could be nothing, but it definitely jumped out at me that Deb somehow manages to document her entire day without a single mention of her father. Another thing that I noticed is that the itinerary appears to be written by Deborah for Deborah. What I mean is that if she was writing this to give to someone, I would expect her to write something like, I went to my mom's house. Instead, we see a lot of familiarity in her writing. Went to mom's. And she also drops pronouns throughout the document. She never says, I went to mom's. She says, went to mom's. Now, some textbooks on linguistics would say that this is an indication that Deb is distancing herself from the statements. An indicator of deception. But in this case, Deb's baseline doesn't seem to support that. The first item on this list reads, Got Angela up, breakfast, dressed. She drops the pronoun here as well, and we have no reason to believe that she didn't get her 8-year-old daughter up and ready for school. So what I'm saying is, we probably shouldn't read too much into this element of the itinerary. Number four says that she arrived at, quote, mom's at about 10 a.m. and that Agnes arrived, quote, right after. So far, we have no evidence to refute this. There are no witnesses that say they saw Deb at the house between 9 and 10, and Agnes likely arrived home around 10.30 or a little after. Then we move on to number five, where it says Deb got the paperwork from her mom and left. She notes that she waved to Joe Zabo as she was leaving. After reading that, I pulled up the transcript from Joe's November 7th interview with police. This was just five days after the murders. In the interview, Joe says that he recalls Deb's car being there in the morning, but he couldn't recall at that time if he actually saw Deb leave the house. He did say, however, that he was working in his garage all day. The garage door was open and he had a clear view of the Courtney's house. He said that he can't recall when exactly Deb's car was gone, but stated that it was gone before the lunch hour, which he then clarifies means that her car was gone before noon, which again is consistent with Mabel's statement that Deb was gone when she returned home at noon, Deb's statement that she was gone well before noon, and the fact that not a single witness, including Joe, who was working in and out of his garage all day directly across the street, saw Deb's car at the Courtney's anytime after 10.15 a.m. But Joe does, however, say that he witnessed, quote, once or twice a pickup that either slowed down or stopped in front of the Courtney's residence. Number six on Deb's timeline is possibly the most important entry of all. It reads, quote, called tree service to see if they really needed paperwork to plant trees and they said no. So I went to CeCe's Pizza at 11 o'clock for lunch. End quote. If these two things are true, in my opinion, Deborah Peringer can be ruled out as a suspect in the murder of her parents. Let's forget about the lividity evidence for a minute. We now have some other factors to help us narrow down the timeline of the attacks. We know for a fact that Agnes was at her chiropractor at 9 a.m. We also know for a fact that after her appointment that she went to Parks Produce. Now, according to Dr. Honeycutt and Barbara Parks, Agnes didn't arrive at the market until after 10 a.m. According to Ms. Parks, Agnes was there for about 20 minutes, and we know that it's a 23-minute drive home from the market. So that puts Agnes, according to these witness statements, arriving home no sooner than 10.43 a.m. But to be on the safe side, maybe she didn't stay at the chiropractors for as long as they thought she did. Let's push that up to as early as 10.30 a.m. So. What is the minimum amount of time that could pass by before the killer could exit the scene if Agnes didn't get home until 10.30? Well, what do we know? I think that we all agree that Lloyd was alive and the attack had not began yet when Agnes arrived home. And I also think that we all agree at this point that Agnes had laid down for a nap and I believe fallen asleep prior to the attacks. If she was still awake when the attack on Lloyd began, I do not believe that she would still be laying in bed when she was attacked herself. Also, there was a phone in the bedroom. She would have called 911 if she did stay in the room. So what we have to figure out here is how long does it take for a person to fall so heavily asleep that they wouldn't hear their husband being violently attacked on the other side of the house? Now, obviously, there's no way to know the actual answer to that question. But I'm going to suggest an estimate of... I don't know, a minimum of 20 minutes that must have passed from the time that Agnes arrived home before the attacks began. So, according to those witness statements, that would mean that all was well in the Courtney's house until at least 1.03 a.m. And by our more conservative estimate, we can move that up to 1050 a.m. So then starting at 1050 a.m., you have the attack on Lloyd and the attack on Agnes then the note, removing the trash bag, collecting the panhandles, and there would have had to have been a lot of cleanup. Remember, if our theory here is that Deb is the killer, her car was processed and there was no evidence of cleanup and no evidence of blood inside. So she would have had to have changed clothes at the very least and more than likely clean herself up, which would be a neat trick since the swabs from all of the drains indicate no water was used for cleanup. So, How long would all of that take? Let's say the killer is moving extremely quickly. At 10.50 a.m., the attack on Lloyd begins and takes five minutes. And then there's another five minutes to kill Agnes. That puts Agnes' time of death at 11 a.m., which, just to be clear, in my opinion, the lividity evidence suggests that it was much later than that. But let's just say she's dead by 11 a.m. How long do we then allow for cleanup? let's say, 30 minutes. Again, that's our killer moving quickly. So now, at the very earliest moment possible, our killer is leaving the scene at 11.30 a.m. And Debbie wrote in her itinerary that she went to lunch at C.C.'s at 11 a.m. And before that, she called the tree service. Now, let's jump back to the items that are noticeably missing from this entire case file. We have no copies of the receipt from Park's produce and it is never entered into evidence at trial. When Patrick Gass is asked about the receipt at trial, he says he'll have to check through his notes and then it's never brought up again. That receipt could pinpoint to within a couple of minutes the exact time that Agnes arrived back home, but it's missing. We have in the police file phone records for Agnes, Lloyd, Brenda, and Paul, but none for Debbie. Why? She said that she made a call to the tree service right in the middle of the window of opportunity of the murders. Now, it is possible that Debbie's phone was listed under her husband's name. In which case, in those phone records, we see an outgoing call at 10.25 a.m. that lasted for 47 seconds. Then the next outgoing call was placed at 12.11 p.m., and lasted for two minutes and 40 seconds. Whose phone records are they? Deb's or Paul's? Who were they calling? What did they talk about? These are all questions that should be answered and are completely absent from the report. How about a receipt from CeCe's Pizza? Deborah says she was there around 11 a.m. Was she? Is there surveillance video? If there's no receipt, were Deb's bank records checked? Did Detective Hardy go to CC's to verify? We'll find out right after a short break.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Everything that I just mentioned before the break would have been easily obtainable information. With little effort, it would have been simple to figure out exactly when Agnes checked out at Parks Produce, and we know how long it would take her to get home. It would have been very simple to confirm or deny the call to the tree service, and it would not have taken much effort to verify if Deb actually did go to CeCe's Pizza for lunch that day. Now, let's get back into the report and see what Detective Hardy does with all of this information. We left off with Hardy visiting Target. In Deb's itinerary, she says that she went there to shop between 8 a.m. and 10 p.m. to pass time. During the visit to Target... Hardy was told that the surveillance cameras on the front doors only stored videos for 14 days, so he had missed the opportunity to view them. But the note here ends with Hardy writing that he scheduled a time to come back and meet with security to look at the video from inside the store. Then, on the 28th, Hardy returned to Target and took a look at the security footage. But in his notes, he states, quote, Due to the quality of the video, Detective Hardy was unable to identify anyone on the video. End quote. Now, I'm going to be honest with you here. I am in no way a conspiracy theorist, but I am starting to get very annoyed with this investigation. You mean to tell me that Target spends the money to have security cameras throughout their store that are of such poor quality that it is impossible to identify anyone? That seems extremely unlikely to me. Maybe the quality isn't good enough to make a complete positive ID, but Deb Perringer at the time was 5'3 and 250 pounds with short hair and she had already told Hardy what she was wearing that day. Surely you can tell in the videos if anyone at least fitting that general description walked in or out of the store. But Detective Hardy wasn't done. The target that he had visited on the 28th was located on Overton Ridge. But two days later, he went to another super target, located on Denton Highway. The manager said that she would pull the videos from that store for the detective to view. But guess what? There's no entry in this report indicating that he ever went back to view those videos. In the meantime, Hardy made contact with Terry Hall. Terry was the contractor that was supposed to give the Courtney's an estimate on remodeling their bathroom. In this entry just says that they scheduled a time to meet later, but I wanted to point out that due to a great catch by listener Kimberly Ann Dinger, I think that we can conclude that Mr. Hall was in fact the man that had stopped by Mabel Zabo's house a couple weeks before the murders looking for Agnes. Kimberly caught that in his statement, Terry told police that he had never gotten back to the Courtney's with an estimate and that at one point he had stopped and talked to a neighbor to make sure that he had the right house when he was going to meet with Agnes. From the report, Terry stated that there was no answer when he first arrived and checked with a lady across the street from the Courtney's to make sure that he had the right address. On December 4th, Hardy met with Deb's neighbor, Cecilia Pfeiffer, to check on Deb's account in her time log that she went to a neighbor's house to get a bandage for her finger after she re-injured it moving rocks on the day of the murders. Cecilia confirmed that Deb did come by that evening, and that she first told her that she cut her finger doing dishes, and then told her that she cut it moving rocks. Cecilia goes on to say that she recalls the tree company planting the trees in the parenter's yard on that same day between noon and one o'clock, and that she did not see Deb until the evening when she came by to get the bandage. This is another reason why it would be critical to know if and when Deb called the tree service. As we move along, we find a subpoena filed for Lloyd and Brenda's phone records and another for Agnes and Lloyd's bank records. Now, at this point, and actually throughout the entire report, there is no record indicating that Hardy ever filed for Deb and Paul's bank records. But on December 10th, we now circle back to Deb's polygraph. On the 10th, Deb's attorney advised that, quote, He had spoken to other professionals who stated that due to the medications that Deborah was taking, that Deborah should not take a polygraph. End quote. Now, when you read this report written by Hardy, his bias is starting to come through loud and clear. Because what he actually wrote was the quote I just read to you, except for it says he had spoken with other, and then in quotation marks, professionals who stated that due to the medications Deborah was taking, that she couldn't take a polygraph. But other than that, there's two things that I want to talk about here. First of all, I want to discuss polygraphs in general. And please, if there's any defense attorneys listening, feel free to confirm or deny what I'm about to say on our social media. But from my understanding, most good defense attorneys will not recommend submitting to a polygraph test. Now, it does happen, especially in post-conviction work, but it's been explained to me that during the investigative stage, nothing good can come from taking a polygraph but a lot of bad can. This is what I mean by that. We all know that polys aren't admissible in court. So whether you pass or fail, no one's ever going to hear about it at trial. or At least they're not supposed to. But here's the downside. If police believe that you're a suspect and they get you to take a polygraph to, quote, help clear your name and you pass the polygraph, they are under no obligation whatsoever to actually clear you. In fact, they rarely do. Just look at a few of our cases. Jesse Eldridge, in season three, he took a polygraph and passed. The investigation continued, and he was later wrongfully convicted. Or look at season seven. Jamie Snow was assured that if he took a polygraph and passed, he would be cleared as a suspect. He did just that, and yet he ended up wrongfully convicted of that very crime. It happens all the time. What tends to happen is that police push you into taking a polygraph to, quote, help yourself, but really, They hold all the cards. If you pass, they ignore it and just keep marching on. They know that you can't bring up the fact that you passed a trial, so who cares? It's a zero risk endeavor for them. But if you fail, they will use that as fuel to justify their investigations into you. The bottom line is that I'm not surprised at all that Deb's attorney advised her not to take the exam. Aside from the fact that it's a risky proposition given the medication she was on, It's just too risky of a proposition in general. The other thing that I think needs mentioning is the fact that a couple of weeks before this, Deb's sister Brenda spoke with Detective Hardy and told him that Deb had told her that her lawyer was going to have her take a polygraph on December 3rd and that if she didn't pass, he was not going to mention it to the police. Hardy referenced that tip in the report here. He states that he asked Deb's attorney if she had been scheduled for a poly on the 3rd, and Kearney, the attorney, replied that he didn't know anything about that. What does that mean? Well, nothing, really. Maybe she did take a preliminary polygraph and fail, or maybe she didn't. It really doesn't matter, in my opinion. But what I'm learning from this whole exchange is that it seems pretty clear that Brenda suspected Deb of killing her parents, from the very beginning. In this report, we find multiple occasions where Brenda contacted Hardy to tip him off about different things regarding Deborah. On January 2nd, we have the note about the DNA testing that I closed with last week. Carla Davis of the Fort Worth PD Crime Lab told Detective Hardy that she was still working on testing the evidence at this point. About a week later, Hardy met with Davis again and she stated, "Quote She was hoping to resume DNA testing starting the week of January 21st. The key word here is resume. I don't think that there is any question that the Fort Worth PD Crime Lab was doing at least some DNA testing. And again, I'll point out that we have zero records of any DNA testing conducted by the lab anywhere in this case file. On January 18th, Deb's husband Paul submitted to a polygraph test and passed. And then on the 23rd, Hardy met with Carla Davis again at the crime lab. Here she states that she is going to, quote, begin DNA analysis again, end quote. A month later, on February 25th, Davis tells Hardy that she had spoken to her supervisor about sending the evidence out to GeneScreen, which is another name for orchid cell mark, for DNA testing. Then the next day, Davis informs Hardy that she was going to package, quote, most of the blood evidence by March 4th and send it to GeneScreen, end quote. So, throughout this report, we have months of notations that the Fort Worth PD Crime Lab was conducting testing, resuming testing, restarting testing, and then four months into the investigation, most of the evidence is shipped off to a private lab. Now, it's certainly possible that the Fort Worth PD Crime Lab was simply backlogged and couldn't find the time to complete the testing, but even if that's the case, the report clearly indicates that at least some of the testing was done. There should be reports documenting those procedures. As we move along, Brenda continues to assist Hardy with his investigation. On February 26, she informs him that Debbie had been in the hospital for some kind of treatment since the Super Bowl. And then on March 19, she called Hardy again to tell him that she had talked with her cousin Billy Ray, he's the nephew that usually mowed the Courtney's lawn, and that he had told her that the Courtney's had been beaten with a frying pan and that he had also heard that Lloyd had a note pinned to his back stating something about putting innocent people in jail. This is the entry in the report that I mentioned in this week's follow-up. Now, the next day, Hardy met with Billy Ray, who informed him that it was his cousin, Leon Dauphino, the judge, who told him about the frying pan, and that he thinks it was his uncle Delbert Allen who had obtained the information about the note on Lloyd's back from an ex-detective although Delbert later denies knowing any ex-detectives or having any knowledge of the note. But as I mentioned in the follow-up, this information is close, but it's not actually accurate. The point being that this tip from Brenda doesn't appear to contain any evidence of guilty knowledge of the crime. The killer knows that the note was on Lloyd's leg, not on his back. They also know it didn't say anything about innocent people in jail. And they also know there wasn't one frying pan used, there was four. On March 28th, Detective Hardy contacted Jamie King from the Orchid Cell Mark Crime Lab. King was the woman that testified at trial about the DNA results. On the 28th, King told Hardy that she had tested numerous samples and hoped to have a final report to him in two weeks. Then, on April 4th, Hardy went to meet with Dr. Abalos. Remember, she was the woman who saw the man in the Courtney's backyard on the day of the murder. And get this... The report says that Dr. Abelos couldn't remember any additional information about the person that she saw other than the fact that the person was wearing blue coveralls, had curly hair, and was possibly wearing gloves. Now, the gloves are interesting, but that's not the really interesting part. The way that Hardy wrote this report, there is no mention of the unidentified person being a man or tall. Now, Abelos is very clear in her statements of police— The person that she saw was a man, a very tall man. But in this report, as Hardy is closing in on Deb, both of those details are left out. The report reads, quote, Maria stated that she could not remember any additional information about the person who she saw. And here's why that's important. Remember, Hardy never released the composite drawing that was created from Dr. Apollos' description to the public fact, the only investigation into that lead was another officer who happened to pull a man over who resembled the composite. Other than that, there seems to be zero attempt to find the man that was in the backyard. Now, let me read to you the rest of this entry in the report, and you tell me if Hardy was determined to charge Deb with these murders despite any evidence to the contrary. Quote, Detective Hardy showed Maria a photo spread containing a photo of Deborah Perringer. Maria was unable to identify anyone in the photo spread." End quote. If you missed the significance there, this is it. Dr. Avalos described a tall man. And the one time Hardy showed her a photo spread in an attempt to identify the man, he included a photo of a 5'3", 250-pound Deborah Peringer, a woman. Now, I don't have a copy of the full photo spread, surprise surprise, but if this was put together like any of the others that I've seen, it would have contained all women. Typically photo spreads are put together with similar looking individuals to see if a witness can pick out a particular suspect. In this case, clearly Hardy wasn't trying to find who the tall man was. He was hoping to get Maria Avalos to point the finger at Deborah Perringer. The next day, Brenda calls in again with another hot tip for Hardy. This time, she says that she spoke with Debbie and that Debbie told her that the case had gone cold and that, quote, Deborah seemed happy with the thought of the investigation being cold, end quote. Then, on the 18th of April, Hardy finally got what he was looking for. The crime lab had received a fax copy of a report from Orchid Cellmark stating that the blood samples from the face of a kitchen drawer and from the dining room table matched Deborah Perringer. That same day, Hardy filed an arrest warrant, and Deb was arrested the next day on April 19th. On the day she was arrested, Deb was interviewed by Hardy. In that interview, according to his notes, she states that she had been at her parents' house that morning and that, quote, she did not cut herself at her parents' house that morning. And there would be no reason for her blood to be at her parents' house. End quote. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Deborah never said that she bled at her parents' house until trial, after she had been confronted with what seemed to be irrefutable evidence that her blood was in fact at the crime scene. And for now, let's assume that there was no grand conspiracy regarding the blood evidence, and Deb's blood really was found at the scene. Let's remember that it was not mixed at all with either victim's DNA, and several listeners have been asking why Deb wouldn't have cleaned up her blood if she spread it throughout the house while dusting, as she later states. The answer to that could be very simple. Maybe she didn't realize that she was bleeding through her bandage. During this interview, Deb shared the details of her mourning with Detective Hardy details he already had months earlier because of the handwritten itinerary seized by the execution of the search warrant. She told Hardy that after she visited her mother, she left their house and went to a 7-Eleven and then to CeCe's Pizza for lunch. Up until this point, I've been back and forth with my evaluation of the investigation. I've seen potential for some corruption but I can also see where we might be making something out of nothing. I'm going to tell you now that I may not have formed a solid opinion on Debbie's innocence or guilt, but I am fuming mad about the way that this investigation was conducted. It is clear and obvious that Detective Hardy had blinders on. He was bound and determined from the very beginning that Deborah Perringer killed her parents. Just look at what we're missing from these reports there were multiple simple methods available to Hardy to track the whereabouts of both Agnes and Deb that morning. Why do we never hear about or get to see the timestamp on the receipt from the produce market? Why was a theory pushed that Agnes walked in on the murder of Lloyd when literally 100% of the evidence indicated that she had been home long enough to take a nap before the attacks began? Why were Deborah Perringer's phone records never pulled and analyzed? why were Deborah's bank records never pulled and analyzed? Why did Detective Hardy never make any attempt whatsoever to verify Deb's claim to have been at CeCe's Pizza for lunch on the day of the murders, when he knew within three weeks of the incident that she claimed that's where she was at during the window of opportunity? Why is it that after family members noticed bruises on Deborah's arms weeks after the murder, did Hardy then document that he saw the bruises on the day of the murder, but didn't photograph them? Why are any and all reports from the Fort Worth PD crime lab completely absent from the police file? Why would a surveillance system from Target not be of high enough quality to, quote, identify anyone? And why was there no copy made of the footage for reference later? Why did Hardy state in his report that he scheduled an appointment at a second Target to look at the surveillance footage, but never documents that he went back to that appointment and saw the footage? Why was the composite sketch created from the description of the only eyewitness that saw anyone near the house at the time of the murders never released to the public? Why was this most promising lead never investigated? Why did Dr. Hardy show Dr. Abelos a photo array containing a 5'3 woman when she described a 6'3 man? Why was the tree service never contacted to verify any contact made with Deb on the morning of the murders? This list goes on and on and on. In most cases, when balls are dropped during an investigation, I chalk it up to incompetence. But in this case, I'm not buying it, not for one second. It is clear from this report that Detective Hardy was extremely thorough, especially when it came to anything related to Deborah. So ask yourself this question. Do you honestly think that Detective Hardy never went to that appointment to view the surveillance video at Target. Do you honestly think that he never made any attempt to prove or disprove Debbie's claim that she was at CeCe's Pizza at 11am? Do you think he just let that one slide? Didn't bother to check up on her alibi for the very time that he theorizes the murders were committed? Not a fucking chance. I think it is far more likely that this report was intentionally created leaving out any and all exculpatory evidence. And if that evidence does exist, we will find it. Truth and Justice Army, it's time to get to work. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay wood Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our facebook page or join in on the conversation on the truth and justice podcast fans page for all of you tweeters you can connect with us on twitter at truth justice pod and i personally can be found on social media at bob Ruff truth and mike can be found at murb gaming m-u-r-r-b-g-a-m-i-n-g don't forget that we always have our 24 7 voicemail line open for questions comments or tips on our cases that phone number is 269-224-2833